From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business, my three favorite topics, collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, Kate Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every week to discuss sports and statistics and all kinds of interesting applications. And of course, in the last 18 to 20 months, we've been talking about COVID in our first segment. Uh, segment four is always our interview segment here on the Zoom edition of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to Ryan Paganetti, who used to work for the Philadelphia Eagles and is now doing consulting in the area of college football analytics. And with the NFL season in full bore, with the NBA now going, NHL, there's golf going on, tennis going on, certainly the World Series. We're taping here on Tuesday. The World Series is about to start today. There's lots to talk about. But Adi, um, as per our if you ritual over the last 18 to 20 months, let's start with COVID. First, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. It's a pretty rainy day here in Wynwood. I don't know if you're out in the burbs today, but uh, it's okay. Out in the burbs. So why don't we start with the the first question that we've been doing for the last 18 or 20 months, which is, so what's caught your eye in COVID? What's the big news in your part of the world in COVID? Uh, the big news uh, is the five to 11 year old ki- kids getting the recommendation to get vaccinated. And- it literally just popped on my phone like five minutes ago that the FDA authorized yeah. emergency yeah. youth authorization for F for five to 11 year olds. And I feel like the, I feel like this is a, in some sense, a big turning point, but not because of the reasons you might think. So it's a, big- yeah. So what are the reasons <laughs> before you get to the real reasons? Yeah. What are the reasons you think people think this is the turning point? Okay, because several things. First of all, they think that um, that children are tremendously at risk and that a vaccine would be really important. And that once the children are vaccinated, we have the vast majority of the population vaccinated. And this can finally put this all behind us. Do you think they think that children are at risk despite, I mean, they all listen to Wharton Moneyball and they know Adi Weiner has been talking about for years, the age distribution that you, the flu, you might be 10 times more likely to die of the flu of a five or 11 year old. 17 times more likely. 17 times. Okay. But (laughs) or, or, Do you think people, and maybe this is not where you're going, but do you think it's because people think that five to 11 year olds are super spreaders and, and this will prevent, by the way, there's no evidence, by the way, that, that, right. But which, do you think it's about spreading or do you think it's about protecting the five to 11 year olds or neither of the two? I think, okay, it's definitely protecting the five to 11 year olds because I don't have one, but I know many people who do and they genuinely are concerned about their kids getting COVID. They aren't, uh, those who are paying attention are, concer- are not concerned for them um, dying of it. But there's a, a lot of fear of complications of long COVID and things like that. And of that, the data is much more, not, not as obvious. Um, well, don't we teach about, we teach, I mean, a matter of fact, um, it's something I, I, you say all the time, I say all the time, you don't need a statistician for a point estimate, you need a statistician to understand uncertainty. Right. Would you not agree that there's significant uncertainty to the long run effects of COVID and that a five to 11 year old getting COVID while she or he may not die, uh, may not even get seriously ill? There is a chance that there's long run COVID effects that we don't understand. There is a chance of this, but you'd think there's literally been tens of millions of kids who've had COVID. Um, we'd, we'd argue- But not arguably, for a long time. Depends what the no, long run no, is but, that you but, mean. Yeah, but enough time to, I mean, 
it's very unusual. It would be, be, be a crazy leap to imagine that you get better and then six months down the line, you get an effect. I think there's been enough uh, kids with have had COVID to know whether or not long, uh, really long-term complications are something to be really concerned so, about. And I'm so not sure that I know the answer, but we should know the answer. So <laughs> let me bring up the point you just raised, because I've always, I've thought about this too. What you're arguing, which may be true, and maybe this is true for many types of illnesses, is that to expect this form of what I'll call non-monotonicity is not realistic. Like, for example, you get mm-hmm. COVID, you get sick maybe for a while, you get better for a long period of time, maybe a year, 18 months, and then all of a sudden, That's it just right. flares back up. And, and you know, maybe maybe most things in life, this isn't just about COVID. Maybe it's about business. Maybe it's about in general. These types of non-monotone patterns just don't happen that much. No, They're- no, it's, it's, it's something not to be scared of. So, but here's the thing, getting back to what, what I think might drive it. Um, I talked to, to really level-headed parents who understand the risks. Um, they'll say that the real issue with kids getting COVID is that they're kept out of school for such a long time when they do. And that when someone gets COVID and they're exposed, they're also quarantined, that it's really the reaction to the, 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 the COVID scare and what compl- how it deeply hurts the kids and complicates the family's lives, that that's what they want. They're rushing to get that vaccine so that they won't be doing things that I actually arguably think they don't need to do anyway. And that's, that's, the, that's the part that I think is interesting to discuss. Speaking of, I might as well stay on my term of monotonicity here. Um, we, all, we, know some, we already have data on the uh, vaccination rate of 12 to 17-year-olds. And by the way, not surprisingly, it's lower than 18 yeah. to 25-year-olds. It's mm-hmm. lower than 26 to 34-year-olds, et cetera. Do you expect a similar, much lower vaccination rate for 5 to 11-year-olds than from even 12 to 18-year-olds? And, and if you had to explain it, is it due to, you know, maybe it's 17 times more likely to die of the flu than COVID for five to 11 year olds and for 12 to 18 year olds, it's eight times. It's just literally normatively, it doesn't make as much sense or do you think there's a different reason? I think you'll see a very much less uptake among five to 11. I think again, it'll be, it'll be geographical um, and you'll see uh, divisions by political affiliations Uh, again. And sometimes that be, that's because of the environment. Like if I, I don't have a five to 11, I mentioned that. I would be, I would think long and hard about vaccinating. A well, let me ask you something. Do you have, you're, you're, we're both evidence guys. We're both data mm-hmm. people. What evidence have you seen that there's any downside risk of it? What, what's the potential risk? You know, we've, okay. we've heard about it in males. We've seen this myocarditis, but I don't know that it exists in five to 11 year olds. Um, what's the downside risk? Okay. So the, vi- the vaccine causes a strong immune response. And in kids, we immune, hope so. Immune responses can run away. They can, you can have autoimmune response. So you can get short-term or maybe not even, you know, a couple of days of pretty serious illness out of a vaccine. Um, and it's, uh, vaccines can cause strong responses. I don't think this one will be that different than any other. But, you know, when you're talking about vaccinating for measles or, or smallpox, or these are terrible diseases. They, they are far, far, far worse for, kid, uh, for the kids than COVID is. And it, the, right, yeah, I just want to make sure you added that, yeah, which is, yeah. you know, COVID's been a horrible disease for the elderly, for, for the, the immunocompromised. Elderly, for children. So for children, smallpox and, and measles are terrible diseases. And it's a no brainer to get vaccinated. You know, cost benefit analysis. When you do a cost benefit analysis on a COVID, it's really not quite that simple. And therefore drilling down into the rates of complications, which are generally not as well studied because the trials 
are small. I mean, they're 20,000, 30,000 people. How are you going to get to, how are you going to measure one in a hundred thousand events? The answer is well, you're so not. Can you, can you mention to people? So I think it's important that you go through a little bit of the mathematics for our listeners here on one, Morton Moneyball. And again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. And I'm here with my co-host this, uh, today, uh, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner, some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen are here every week here on the Zoom edition of Wharton Moneyball. Let's go through the mathematics. Let's imagine you even have a, chi- a trial of five to 11 year olds with 30,000 cases, and you're even mentioned, uh, 30,000 trials. First, you're not even talking about this, the long-term severity. First of all, the, the percentage of those people that actually get a severe case of COVID might be one in a thousand. So now all of a sudden you say, well, I got 30,000 people. Yeah, there's 30 people that get a severe illness. Or mm-hmm. now you're saying that the severity rate, uh, the uh, the complication rate may be one in a hundred thousand. Yeah, but you only have 30,000 people. And so you're talking about you, because of these rare, rare events, you have such low statistical power. You do. And I just actually just looked it up. It's not 30,000. It's 3,000. Yeah, I didn't wonder. I was wondering where you got the 30,000. But the yeah, number no, I remember reading this week was 3,000. It's 3,000. So you have essentially no statistical power to measure uh, effects that are rarer than about one in 3,000. Um, you're probably even seeing one case is, is roughly a toss. Oh, can you just tell me, I, I love hearing your brain work. Where <laughs> does that intuition come from that effect sizes of one in 3,000 from a population sample of 3,000? I mean, you obviously have an expected value of one. Yeah, but and, is and, that and where- standard deviation is one as well. So that's where you, you okay. where from. yeah. And a plus on the mean and the standard and the variance are the same. So it's actually nice. So one and one. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, roughly, and to have power, you need several standard deviations. Well, so that's what I was saying. You actually would, you have to double that sample size at least, maybe up to up to nine thousand. Or, um, you know, one thing is, is actually three nine thousand is about right. nine thousand would 9, do it. It'd give you plus or minus three standard errors yeah. around it. You could probably estimate some sort of well, effect there. In, in a plus on with with a, a mean of a mean of one, um, basically three three of rare events um, would be about 0.05. So that's about that's about the ninety five percent confidence right. level. Um, so that gives you so basically need three times the sample size, three times the sample size to measure events of that rarity. So um, basically, if you have nine thousand, you're looking at events of ra- rarity one in three thousand. So if you're going to ramp that up to millions, you could be missing something. That's well, really let me ask you a question bad. then: Does it surprise you as an evidence based statistician? that there has been an emergency use authorization based on if maybe there's other data that you and I aren't seeing. Maybe there's a meta-analysis of 50 studies, each of size 3000. But if that's the study they're basing it on, does that surprise you of the small sample size then? Yeah, I, I, I think there's, I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't want to sound like, uh, I mean, the issue here is that there's no way that, that this would be approved this quickly with this lo- small amounts of data. If the consequences of the vaccine, um, will have such big effect on society that they're rushing to, to, to develop it. As I said, imagine how different the world will be once 5 through 11 start taking it. They're, they're going to end quarantines. They're, they're going to be a massive return to normal in lots of places where kids are, not, are still meeting by Zoom a couple days a week in lots of places. Uh, and they're masking. So much will change once 5 through 11 start to get vaccinated. Um, the question, as I said, is do they need to? I mean, and I don't, I think that we don't, there's so much we don't know about the side effects of a vaccine in children. I'm going to leave it to virologists who might know much more about what you can mm-hmm. infer from 12 to 18s about five through 11s. And maybe you can leverage that data 
and in a useful way. And, and, and if that might effectively create an, a vastly larger sample size, think about how many 12 through 18s have been vaccinated. It's probably millions by, the, by this point. So if you could inf- make an inference from that group down to the five through 11, you might have enough sample size to make it. How much belief, and then I want to talk about what caught my eye in COVID this week. How much belief do you have that such an extrapolation, like would you linearly extrapolate? Would you what, what kind of extrapolation would make you feel comfortable that you could go from the 12 to 18? Like, I, I, this is one of the things I always worry about. <laughs> Maybe there's a, a significant discontinuity, as far as I know, at the age of 10. I have no idea. I'm just you know making what? that up. We're, we're, we're data guys, right? So I'm going to ask uh, I'm going to ask them to look at other vaccines. And have they ever seen a discontinuity of any kind in other Great vaccines? Point. And if they haven't, then it's a pretty fair bet that what you've what you've seen from 12 to 18 can extrapolate downward. Notice how they eliminate five and under. That seems to be a completely different um, immunological kind of circumstance, particularly with babies. Um, But uh, they're not in school. So five to 11 is a much, much more important from a societal perspective um, community to get you know, to get returned back to normal as quickly as possible. I don't want to say that vaccine is the only answer. I think you can return them to normal right now. As many, 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 many countries have let our essentially back to normal um, with schooling. We're one of the few countries that are still um, running around with with geographically diverse um, attitudes towards towards school. Um, I'm I'm we've discussed this before, yeah. but but uh, so the vaccine will change that. I mean, listen, two weeks of quarantine every third day or in every third week seems like a terrible thing to have to happen. Um, yet that's often being imposed in some communities. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you, let me tell you what caught my eye. And I want to ask you if it's uh, if I if the inference that I'm making is correct. So right now, again, every week I try to go to the CDC website, see what the data says. Right now, we're averaging about 70,000 cases a day here in the United mm, States. Yeah. But we're still averaging 1,200 deaths, which is a massive rate for that number of cases. So I have a belief, and I'd love your opinion. I think one of those two numbers is wrong, and it's a number of cases. I think there must be much many more cases, assuming, by the way, I'm under the belief, but I know we've talked about this too, that a bunch of people that potentially they're saying have died of COVID, or maybe they've died of something else, or they died of a comorbidity and COVID. Let's assume that 1,200 number is correct. I think that 70,000 number has to be wrong. In other words, we're not testing enough because there are countries around the world where on 70,000 cases, they're having 100 deaths, not 1,200 deaths. And we talked about this last time. I understand Americans are fat and this and that. It's not describing no, the difference no. between 100 and 1,200 deaths. What do you think is going on? Why do we have so many deaths? Think just simply, deaths divided by the number of cases. It's shockingly high. It's shockingly high. And, and it, just to hear some other data points. Uh, so e- England, which has right now, is looking at nearly 50,000 cases a day. All right. They're getting minuscule numbers of deaths, 50. Yeah. So just look at the ratio. It's essentially one to one. And we have, you said 50. We have 25 times or 100. We have over, we have 10 to 20 times the number of deaths for the number of cases. It's been running historically about eight, about 10 times. Um, I just looked at Israel's website. Their death rate is around a quarter of a percent. And ours in the United States is like one and a quarter. So well, well, if you you believe my number of 1200 to 70,000, it's 1.7%. Yeah, one point seven percent. That's crazy. Um, we, we seem to be just off the charts in our in our just death divided by 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 cases, and uh, it's and it's uh, I don't quite get it. And there doesn't I can't find any country that seems to have that that essentially that that ratio. I mean, we're down from I mean from 
and the, the worst times it was 3%, um, but now it's one and a half and we're he- heavily vaccinated. I would, I would have to say it is mostly under testing yeah. um, because when you're, particularly when you're vaccinated, you're, you're, you're very likely to get almost no symptoms or, or now that people are getting colds. I mean, as I said, I, I've talked about it in the show, my son and his entire flat, um, the other friends are there. They all got, you know, just a grand, just sweeping case of COVID. And the reason why it was detected was one of their classmates is in college and was being required to test twice a week. So he came down with a positive test because he got tested positive. The other flatmates all tested, all got tested, and they all were all collectively minorly sick. My uh, son's fiance, um, she also got minorly sick, but never got bothered to be tested. She is 100% sure she had COVID too but never got tested. Um, lots and lots of people are just simply not bothering to get tested because the, the, the course of the illness is short. There's lots of other things out there now that- oh, For that, vaccinated individuals. For vaccinated individuals. And also the things, you know, let, let me ask you a simple question. Uh, if you were to get a, a very bad stuffy nose and a sore throat, would you run and get COVID tested? Yes, you would. I think um, I would right now. Yeah. yeah. If I did, I probably would. Yes, okay. I, I would. Um, just because- um, what I, given that you've talked about this, yeah, yeah. given oh, there no, are sure. a lot of ways that now there are actually um, not remedies, but there's things there you can there there are things you can take mm-hmm. once you have COVID. In other words, whether it's the pill or whether it's some sort of I don't know, you know, uh, remdesivir or whatever yeah. I'm going to take. Yeah. You know, I'm I want to know because I would want to start taking a treatment course which will lower the probability of severe illness, yeah, even yeah. though I'm vaccinated. Why not? Yeah, I, I probably would too if I were to get a, a, a bad cold. But I can tell you that a, that a teenager or a young adult wouldn't even probably would not. Um, those are the types of people who are, who are getting missed. But I also think we we are we have death. We have we're, we're attributing COVID deaths um, to anyone who has COVID at the time of death, whether they died for it or not. And maybe other countries are not doing that. Um, but I consider this one of the greatest mysteries. Yeah, about COVID right now, I do. I really think of it as one of one of the most unexplained phenomena. If you look at, but I have to say, um, I was looking at Israel, which is was great data. They have a very, um, they have a very interesting kind of every every country goes through its phases. So if you look at say United States, we have a big big hump and another big hump and another big hump, and our death hump is about half the size in this last round as it was in the previous ones. Yep. relative to the size. So that's the vaccine at work. But it's not a tenth the size. No, I know. Size, like you see in England and France and in Germany. That was my, that's why Italy. that caught my eye. Why, well, why well, isn't well, it much lower? But I notice in Israel, it's the same size. It's the same uh, It's the same size as the United States relative to, to um, its previous surges. But interestingly enough, but, it's, but the percentages are way, way lower at every round. Israel at its, was at 0.6 and why the United States was at 3%. And now it's down to about 0.2 when, when the United States is 1.7. But relatively speaking, its humps look like the United States do. And I don't get it. So that's why I, there, there's something weird about both of those countries. Here's something else that crossed my eye, crossed my mind or crossed my eye in, in uh, COVID. Yeah. Um, where at what age group? This is a question. Oh, you're looking at the sheet. I stop looking at the sheet. I want to ask you a question. At oh, what not. age group do you think the crossing point is? And here's what I mean: the percentage of the population and the percentage of deaths. So, what I'm here's an example: in the U.S. right now, 65 plus is 16.5 percent of the population, oh, and 77.3 percent of the deaths. Just so I'll say it again. Yeah. 
16.5% of the population and 77.3% of the deaths. Where, at what age group do you think I go to where it flips, where it's a larger fraction of the population and a lower percentage of the deaths? Oh, let me see. Uh, somewhere in the 40s, I would kind of guess. If I it's, it's, in, it's in the 50s, actually. In the 50s, okay. In the 50s. And so that's where the crossing point is between, in some sense, you know, we always joke with Shane, who's maybe 10 years younger yeah. than us, that, oh, you're such a youngster. Actually, from a COVID perspective, you and I are on one side of the severity line, and he appears to be just on the other side of the severity right. line. There seems to be some form of discontinuity that happens, I'll say, between age 45 and 55, where 55 plus is very different than 45 minus. So you also put up on, on our rundown an, a statistical fact, which I want to dig into, which is that uh, just about 54% of the COVID deaths are male. Um, 54.4% and that's 49.2% of the population the population. So there's slightly more men dying than, uh, than, uh, women of COVID. But then when you drill down by age and completely different picture emerges, which is accepting the youngest category where, where, uh, boys at 17 and down are dying at around 20% higher rate than the girls at every age category, the difference between men and women death rates is vast. Uh, it's, it's averaging about 70 to 75% higher, which is something that is just generally not known. And so that leads to, of course, the, 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 the obvious question, how is it possible that in every age group, men are dying at a much, much higher rate, 70 to 80% um, higher, yet where I think it even peaks in the 50s, that's like the worst, 40s and 50s is like the worst. Yep. Um, the gap is the worst. And then it gets, how is it possible yet um, overall men are only Well, I'll give you my answer and you could just, uh, you can grade me, Professor Weiner. I will. Um, Whenever these situations happen, it's always because of unequal sizes in the cells. And so what it has to happen is um, women live longer than men. Therefore, there are more older women than older men. Older age is a bigger factor than gender. And therefore, that's what's tilting the balance. That's right. Is that otherwise, if it's if there were equal sample sizes and it was seventy percent in each group, then you know a weighted average of an equal set of weights—that's what you're going to get. So it has to be. It has to be that. A plus, uh, uh, Professor Bradlow. Thank Um, you. You got it. Yeah, and that's but it's paradoxical because people really can't imagine how can the gap actually be so big. Everybody has an age, so the relevant um, relative relative risk is age adjusted. Yet if you aggregate, you see that 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 large, large discrepancy tends to go away. Now, it's people. um, What's much more interesting, of course, is is um, what causes the gap? Why is such a big gap? And from what I understand, part of that gap is uh, is overall kind of health comorbidities. Men are more likely to have diabetes, I suppose. But even if you adjust for those things, it's still an immensely large gap. Women just handle it better. They just handle COVID and are much less likely to die than men. And that's a true in every single age group except the youngest. Is that after, by the way, is I assume when it's relative risk, does that control for weight differences? Does it? They've they've done that. Right. So that there's been. So how much does that shrink if you because just men are men are heavier than women. Uh, Men, I assume, you know, we have to have more oxygen because of our body mass index tend to be higher. If we control for all of those factors, it's obviously not going down to one. But I'm just wondering how much of this 70 percent goes away. I think it's 50 or 60 percent still there. So it's wow. It just takes a little bit, a little bit of it. 
I mean, there's there's a few uh, physiological reasons. I mean, everyone will, will a simple one is like women are just tougher. Um, they have to go through pregnancy. They're just built to survive. And that's why they live longer. Right. I mean, they, they live substantially longer than men. The other argument has to do with ACE inhibitors. That's where the the, um, the virus really uh, targets and they have a different it's just uh, they're just differently um, uh, genetically different. And there's some component. I don't understand the particulars. And I'm not even sure this is legitimate, but this is something that I have certainly have encountered an argument that's made. So let me ask you a question that I'm sure many of our listeners here in Wharton Moneyball are thinking about. So we're about to head back in, at least in the Northeast and all over the country. It's still the winter everywhere. It doesn't change when it's the winter, where you are, live in the country. But we're heading back towards the colder months where there's going to be more indoor activities, Possibly, as we know, the cold, just just standard cold, uh, spreads more in the winter. What's your forecast, given we're definitely not at a zero death rate, we're not at a zero case rate, um, we have about 70% of 18-plus people now fully vaccinated, which, by the way, is an impressive number. We have 70% of 18-plus population now fully vaccinated. What's your prognosis for what's going to happen between, let's say, now and March of 2022? Are we looking at another hump and spike up? Are we looking at what, what do you think? And let me just ask you, I want you to integrate that with the possibility that the shots that people got a year ago and you guys probability a prediction of who's getting the booster is not as high as my prediction. What do you think is going to happen? I think it is as a substantial likelihood that we have another surge. Um, but in, in truth, I think we're going to shrug it off. That's, I mean, I think there will be, listen, we shrugged off this surge. This surge happened in the middle of the baseball season. And I went to quite a few baseball games and there was simply no, it was a normal day at the, at the stadium. Obviously you're not going to a stadium indoors and maybe it's a different, different, it'll be a different environment, but even, even, uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen, I went to see him, uh, perform. Um, he was only allowing vaccinated people. They were checking at the doors. But nevertheless, he had a, uh, a full house right in the middle of our, our summer surge. It wasn't particularly strong in New York City, as you know. Um, uh, I think it'll be varied. I think there'll be some places where they see, we'll see more cases. Remember, the South got destroyed um, in this round, and the Northeast really didn't get much at all. So uh, we're the target, but we also have the greatest vaccination rates. And, and this is, I think, important, we also had the greatest pre uh, infections. In other words, natural infection was most widespread in the Northeast. Have and you seen you- any data to suggest that the, uh, forget whether it's Delta, but let's, let's, no, let's not forget it. Have you seen any data to suggest that the alpha variant COVID someone may have gotten in early to mid 2020 provides them any protection 18 months later to the Delta variant? Uh, I, it, it, it provides about as much, I think, as a, as a vaccine. So it does. Well, that's not so bad. That's not, but, but it's interesting. So the data does suggest, and this is the, that a combination of a vaccine and a natural infection, a pre-Delta natural infection, is a home run. Right. That is, there, the, 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 the countries that have assembled the best data see virtually no cases at all of a vaccinated and infected person. Um, they just well, let me ask you, is there, is there the possibility? I mean, this is kind of how smallpox and other vaccines used to work. Do you ever see a day where there's a, I'll call it a single shot, where you're getting both a vaccine and a small amount of the COVID virus mm-hmm. in a shot to provide you even more protection than just the vaccine well, itself? I, well, I will say, um, I'll, 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 piggyback, I'll try to answer that question as best as I can. 
the answer I don't know, but I will say that the J and J vaccine was, right. a, was an attenuated, uh, a dead or attenuated actual COVID virus. As and it and there and this is actually another announcement. So we, you're a believer in mix and match. You're a believer. I, I gonna, that just got approved. I think mix and match is a home run. I think that is the best way to go about it. And now I wish I knew. I wish I got the mix and match um, approval before I got my. Booth. And you're not even referring just for our listeners here. You're not referring as much so to Moderna and Pfizer. You're talking about J and J, and I'll take anything. Either. If I, I, when I got boosted, I got boosted with a Pfizer, which is what my first two doses were. I would have taken the Moderna in a second, and I would have taken. I maybe because would have considered the J and J. Hmm. Maybe I should can still consider it. <laughs> Well, I, 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 until they tell me I can't get a four shot, I'm, I'm not looking <laughs> at all options at this point. Listen, I'm still sitting there in the classroom um, with, you know, 300 students a day. And uh, and and I, that was my reason for getting the booster. Um, as long as I'm in the classroom with hundreds and hundreds of students. And, I'm, and I'm, I am, too, as you know, right now as well. I started on Monday. Well, I'm, this, I'm, I'm game for, for, for vaccines. <laughs> well, this has been the first quarter of Moneyball. This has been the COVID segment of Moneyball. This has been Eric Bradlow and Adi Weiner. We still have three quarters. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Q2 of our Zoom edition. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. Again, some combination of us, Shane Jensen and Kate Massey are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball, and you too can become part of the conversation. There's two very easy ways. Um, Our Twitter handle, at WMoneyball, is one great way to stay engaged and to tweet at us. The other way is by email, and you can reach us at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. That's moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Whenever we get questions to our email, we always bring it up during the show. So Adi, um, given it's me and you, it would be we would be remiss, and also the World Series is starting tonight. If we didn't talk a little bit about baseball, so I mentioned this last week. But before we get into the analytics of the two teams playing, you and I, there, if we looked at the distribution of fandom in baseball, you and I have to be in one percentile of all baseball fans that still exist on this planet. How much of this World Series are you going to consume? One of the things I was talking about last week is baseball seems like a unique sport to me that if you don't have a real rooting interest, it's, you know, it's hard to watch a lot of baseball when two teams are playing that I don't particularly care about. So let's just start with that. How much of the Braves Astros World Series are you planning on watching? Well, I do intend to tune in. Uh, Like so many baseball games, it has a late start, 8.07. And the game is destined to be three and a half hours, probably on average, maybe even longer. Yeah, I think is appalling. I mean, and it's it's the greatest challenge that baseball has to face in coming years to really get the time of the game back down to what it was, you know, as little as twenty five years ago. So if you think about it, there's virtually zero chance I'm going to make it to the end of the game. Um, <laughs> um, so will I watch it? Yes. Will I will I be doing something else while it's on? Almost certainly. Um, and I wouldn't be doing that. I would if it were um, if I had a much stronger rooting interest. The other issue is it's very hard for me to watch this particular World Series. Um, one because the Astros, I'm just not pretty. I'm just kind of down on the Astros given all their their scandals of late, and I'm a little down on the on the Braves not because they d- don't deserve it, because I just don't feel good about an 88 win team being playing in the World Series. 
Well, let me ask you. I mean, I haven't even looked, but how how does that rank in terms of the worst teams to make the World Series? Here's what I do remember. I forget which of the 98 to 2,000 years it was. You probably remember this. It was probably 2,000. I think the Yankees lost 13 straight games to end the season, barely squeaked into the playoffs, and then ended up winning the World Series. I can't imagine they won much more than 88 games that season either. But how bad – like. How bad is an 88-win team to be in the World Series? I, I think it's definitely in the tail. Um, certainly, I mean, until the wild card, it was essentially unheard of. Right. Um, so in, once the wild card, and now we have two wild cards per division, so it used to be one, now it's two. I think it's it can't be it can't be lower. I would guess uh, it's probably in the bottom five percentile. But there's certainly teams that are worse. I'm sure we can look that up before our interview is. But by the way, just to let you know, I, I looked up. I'm pretty sure the Braves had the 12th best record in baseball this year. That's the 12th. Well, they're in the World Series. They had the 12th best. Look, there's three teams in the AL East that had a better record than them. We know right. that. Yeah. Let's just uh-huh. start with that right there. That's um, right. And, you know, obviously the White Sox had a better record than them. There were lots of teams with better. Obviously the Dodgers and the Giants out West had a better record. Yeah, the, the thing that disappoints me, let's, 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 let's think about it from historical perspective. You and I have watched many a World Series. One of the nicest things about the World Series, particularly in the, day, in the days prior to, the, to, to interleague play, yes. this was your chance to see the great stars of the National League. And we were, I, we, I was, you and I were both Yankee fans, American League. And because of the market and the inability to watch games that weren't on TV, you just didn't see those great those great players. So this was your chance to see to see um, you know Griffin well, in our day, over. Steve Garvey and Ron Steve Say, Garvey, and... Ron Say, P- Pete Rose, um, right? And and the World Series was just fascinating to see the this the best team in the opposing uh, league play. And now you have obviously you have interleague, so you get to see the, the these other players much more commonly on in in your own market. But, but the the Braves. I mean, who am I turning into watch? What who's the star? If it were the the Dodgers, I'd be all over it with their pitching. Well, I guess the Braves. I mean, the historical star for the Braves would be Freddie Freeman. That's obviously, if he weren't out for the season, it would have been Acuna, right? Right. He would have been there. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, the Astros though do have a number of stars. The Astros do. The Astros are a genuinely good team. What do they win? Ninety five games. That ninety five. That doesn't place them in the the upper upper echelon, but. They're a good team, and they're there deserving of a, world, of a World Series berth. They have some tremendous talent. I mean, I think one of the things that we should confront ourselves, I'm, I'm, I hate to do this because you, you're the guy who, who, who talks about it, but, and I'm the guy who kind of is skeptical, but momentum and hotness in baseball, at some point you got to acknowledge it, right? How does a team – Well, teams let me just say, I actually looked at this. So <laughs> let me say what – I put it in the rundown, but let me say what I looked at. Just because this was the easiest day to get. There's nothing magical about 30 games. There's, I'm just, let's make sure our listeners say, Brad, though, isn't saying there's anything magical. But there was an easy data source where I could look at every team's record over the last 30 games of the season. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. The Braves and the Astros were not hot at the end of the season. They no. were the seventh and eighth best teams over the last 30 games of the season. Oh, I was trying to wonder, than... were they the best? Yeah. Like, and by the way, remember, the Braves – it wasn't obvious they were going to win the division. For a while there, the oh. Phillies were still pushing them. The Astros, I think, had the division maybe locked up for a little bit longer, so maybe it's not as telling. But I was expecting, given that their total win total is not that great, and I think there was a time where the Braves were under 500, I was expecting them to be the top two or three teams in baseball in the last month of the season. 
they were the seventh and eighth best. Well, they turned on their heat during the during the playoffs. I mean, that's where it turned on. I mean, that's obviously where, what mattered. Um, you know, there there's been some. It's very hard to detect hotness because there's so many players, and hotness isn't great. It's, it's but can a team collectively? I mean, historically, I would say no. It, it, there's a difference between proving something exists and yet, nevertheless, it is a is it a possible, a plausible explanation? The Braves are outplaying their historical, their, their year long abilities and talents. And that happens in baseball. Right. But the question is why, is it just, let me ask you something. Let's just, I don't want to get over. It's not about overly technical. Here's another possibility. And how would you dispute this? Um, No, the teams they're playing are underperforming. It's a paired comparison model. It's a minus B that matters. What you're saying a is better. I'm saying B is worse. Could be. Coldness, right? Small amount of coldness, a little bit of hotness, kind of lining up the same. Or we could say um, if the Dodgers hadn't had every one of their top 10 players injured, maybe they would have been the team in the World Series. Oh, yeah, well, clearly. Now, now on the, exactly. I mean, I, the, the, the fact that they beat the Dodgers, given their 106-win season or what, 105? 106 for the Dodgers, 107 for the, Dodgers. for the Giants. Yeah, I mean, that's a very big gap in performance over the season. Um, yeah, can you give our listeners a sense of how much 18 games really means? Like how big a gap is that between two I mean, teams? 106 wins is a historically good team. I mean, it's 103 is a, is a really good team and 106 is historically the way, good. The way I love to norm it, by the way, maybe this is, I don't know why this means anything to me. The Dodgers were two wins away from winning twice as many games as they lost. They were 108 and 54 right. is two and one. Yep. That's a lot. I mean, you're winning two out of every three baseball games. Two out of every three, and the, and, and the Braves are just a little bit better than than, than even. Um, right. It's a, big, it's a very big gap. But listen, we can quote Shane in his in absentia. Ultimately, playoff games, one by one, are not much different than coin tosses. And when you have short series, seven games is a short series, they can easily flip. All right, so um, what odds would you give the 88-win Braves? I'll tell you what the betting line is in a second. What odds would you give the 88-win Braves against the 95-win Astros? 40%. Astros have home field. What would you say? 40%. Yeah, so the betting line right now on the Astros is like minus 135. Yeah, that's pretty much – let me let me do a quick calculation. 135 over 235. Is... Oh, 135 over 235. I was going to do one, one over 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 – 100 over 235 to figure out the, the Braves probability. Um, and that comes out to be 42.5%. Okay. And almost exactly. And if you now to counter the VIG, the VIG is worked in, which makes these probabilities higher than they genuinely are, usually about 5% or so. I think right on target. Yeah, I think about 60 40 seems about right to me. Um, That's overall. 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 The other way I think about it, maybe it's not the right way to think about it, is that. If both of these teams play to the best of their ability, who wins this series? I think it has to be the Astros. Of course. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about a research project that I and some of my, my PhD yeah, please. are working on right now. Um, it came out of the, the, the research project that I worked on last year having to do with a third time through the order effect. Um, I don't know if we talked about it on our show. I think we did. Um, but what I was able to, to conclude, at least in my investigations, we're pretty clear on it is that the idea that that the pitcher is somehow advantaged on sorry the batters are advantaged on the third time through the order doesn't seem to hold up that what really and so in, in statistical terms 
uh, what you're looking for is some kind of discontinuity. As the as the batter batting order turns around, there's a, a, a an advantage going to the hitter. So let me ask you a question: Is there any just for our listeners out there? Is there any advanced statistical modeling needed, or can I just look at metrics like? Batting average the third time up versus the first or second. Um, you know, uh, on base percentage, slugging percentage. You know, is there anything that I need to do from a modeling perspective, or is this just with enough data? This is just purely an empirical question. Okay, so it's 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 it's, it's it, it, with enough data, anything is an empirical question. Just no matter what your right. problem is, we'll leave it at that. But I will say that the the question is, you can't just bucket first time through the order, second time through the order, third time through the order. Because the key confounder is pitchers getting tired. Pitchers tire as the game goes along. So what you're looking for is a is a is a con- discontinuity that is in excess of the advantage that the batters gets as the game goes on, as pitchers are tiring, and that has to be modeled. If and despite the fact that we do have a lot of data, you are advantaged by modeling. That gives you that borrows strength. So doing that, I was able to to pretty much conclusively show that there really is no batter advantage that happens in excess of the advantage that the batter gets as the pitcher gets exhausted. But that doesn't have anything to do with the World Series as they're currently being played. What, what we did also notice in the modeling process that pitchers way, way differently than hitters have individual non-stationarity. So if you think about it, there's inter-game variation and there's intra-game variation. So within the course of a game, the pitchers look pretty uniform, if you will, but between games, they're very different. In other words, a simple way to say it is that the greatest pitchers are great every time out. An average pitcher sometimes looks pretty crappy and also sometimes looks excellent. In other words, you, your stuff can genuinely be working on one day and not be there the other day. And that's not something that a batter that happens in, in, to batters. And I don't think it happens so much in other sports, but it happens to a pitcher. And I think in some degree, this can explain why um, teams with weaker pitching over the course of a season, which is a significant predictor of why you're an only 88 win team, can somehow get it together in the World Series because the decent but not great pitchers can, can by by whatever means mechanism causes it can have their stuff. And that just happens. And that makes them. Well, uh, also, how about you don't have to play them? Like, how about you don't have to play the fifth and sixth best pitchers? Well, on you your certainly team? don't need those either. Exactly. And so to me, it's also a depth versus breath argument. I mean, if you took the, I mean, maybe this is not the right magnitude. Maybe it is. If you took the Astros fourth and fifth best pitchers, let's assume they're maybe they're better than the Braves fourth and fifth best. And you took them both out. Maybe the teams are closer and equal. Closer you, can, you can hide your weaknesses in a short series, but not over 162. That's games. right. I mean, I, you know, one of the things one of our listeners asked a question uh, by email, uh, and we had, we didn't actually get to to answer it, and it had to do with Joey Gallo. Uh, Joey Gallo, by a lot of sabermetric um, measurements, looks like he's an ideal candidate to be a, a really important factor on a major league baseball team. Yes, he strikes out a lot, but that doesn't matter. He hits a lot of home runs and he has an extraordinarily large, high on base percentage. These factors are supposed to be good for teams. Yet it seemed, as Yankee fans will know, is that he was a useless um, lug in the lineup. And that has to do with potentially when you're facing top pitching, um, these average valuable on average valuable players might not be great for you so in other words what you what what measures 
that you use to measure your effectiveness over the course of the season might not be the measures you want for those World Series. And that, that having players that contribute a lot over the course of the season against weak and average teams are not who you want facing the, 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 the best competition. And I think Joey Gallo, I think a lot of these metrics that sabermetricians are, love to talk about are calibrated at the mean. They're not calibrated against right. top competition. And there's a lot of juice there, I think, for, for young sabermetricians who want to do some work to kind of figure out, well, are, are there certain kind of hitters that can carry across their abilities across no matter what the opponent is? Obviously, against better pitchers, everybody's worse. But I think someone like Joey Gallo gets a lot worse against a great pitching. Can I ask you guys another, another question from the mailbag? And um, it's, it's, a, it's a longer letter, and, and I don't have it paraphrased, but let me just give you the spirit of it. It's from John Carolyn, by the way. John is in Atlanta, says, longtime listener, first-time caller. We love hearing from you on the mailbag, so please do write us. It's moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. But John's kind of taking us to task for acting as if hockey is just all chance in the playoffs, but then baseball is more predictable. And he's asking, is this really true? And he's noting that we are willing to make picks in these baseball games. And um, does that suggest that we think that it is less random than the in the, in the Stanley Cup playoffs when we're so often just saying, hey, who knows? It's going to be a coin flip once you get to the playoffs. So he's fundamentally asking about the relative noisiness of baseball versus hockey playoffs. But he's also asking a little bit about our willingness to make picks, even against the line. I mean, who are we to have an edge against the line if we're not using some kind of model? Do we have some defense of ourselves for our willingness to say, hey, who do you like, Braves or uh, Astros tonight? I mean, my, I, I don't think I've ever looked, maybe you guys have, on the randomness of hockey versus baseball. I, I get the sense that baseball is more deterministic in the following sense. You know, if I just look at, you know, top team playing bottom team, like, well, hockey has eight in each conference, one, eight, two, seven, et cetera. I would imagine that the lower seeded team wins in hockey a lot more than the lower seeded team wins in baseball. Mm-hmm. If that's a metric you want to use to measure randomness, I would imagine that what I'm saying is true. So, yeah, I do think hockey is more random, even at the level, as Adi said, even in the tail when I siphon out all of the bad teams and now I'm just looking at playoff teams, I think hockey's more random. Yes, I do. Yeah, I think hockey is a little bit more random. There is a metric we once talked about years ago um, having to do with uh, measuring kind of the, the predictiveness of the, of the, the champion. So what, what I did was, is I ranked every um, World Series by very crudely, because this was before a lot of data was available. I remember doing this years ago, basically by, by season record. And I, I, I calculated the probability that the favorite wins. And so I ranked every World Series from most likely that the favorite wins down to least likely that the favorite wins. So the favorite would win with at least 50% probability. The highest probability was something like 80% or, eight, or maybe even higher, maybe the 27 Yankees. I forget what it was. And I asked, how far down the list did you have to go before the, the first underdog won? And I think it was about eight or nine off the top before the first underdog won. And I'd be curious to know what that would be for hockey. Like how far do you have to go in the Stanley Cup playoffs before the, if you ranked by the most likely victor, how far you would have to go? And I would guess not more than just a couple. <laughs> yeah, right. I sure because, sentiment. And because the I, gap just isn't that big. Um, and any, by the way, any, our, our friend and financial analyst, Michael Mobison, who had a great, who has a great book, has a number of books. One of them is called The Success Equation, where he talks about skill versus luck and in investing and in sports. 
he he ordered the sports according to randomness in it and you know it depends on whether you're talking about a game or a series because obviously series rules vary but he found hockey to be significantly more random than baseball as well so mobison is on your side eric is on the side of your intuition and where and where did he put the other sports yeah you ever you remember the ranking i mean my ranking is uh basketball the least the most predictable yeah then football then baseball then hockey i believe he has football soccer and baseball pretty tightly clustered i'm not sure how fine a distinction you can huh. draw there he probably draws some but i think i think of it as in three clusters basketball on one end hockey on the other and then foot, american football european football and baseball relatively close together well football only because there's the games are decided by one game um i think there's if you had a seven game playoff in football, yeah, right. Package, I, I right? think yeah. I think the unit of analysis was the game. Is, yeah, is what I would think, not the series. Well, let's spend maybe just a few minutes uh, now that uh, Cage joined us. Let's spend just a few minutes uh, talking about a few other sports because we'll spend, I think, Q3 talking about we, we haven't talked about college football or pro football yet. We'll maybe leave that for Q3. Um, a couple of things caught my eye in sports. So, you know, I, I love uh, thinking about age distributions in sports. And something happened this weekend that, you know, you can count it for however important it is to you. But one of the miracles of all – forget Tom Brady, that's a miracle, but this is a different miracle. In golf, the miracle man is Bernard Longer. So this is the multi-time Masters champion who's 64 years and a month old, who's now the oldest player ever to win a golf tournament. So he won a senior tournament, and uh, he actually won at 64 years and one month. And so to me, I mean, everyone knows there's a senior event 50 and older. But 64 is considered <laughs> senior, senior. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that's tremendous. And there's no, I actually have a belief. I, I see no reason why he can't win at age 70. There's mm. nothing that suggests to me he won't win a senior golf tournament at the age of 70. Come on, Eric. That, that curve has to catch up with him at some point, doesn't it? I mean, we, we, the body does start changing dramatically at some age. I mean, even uh, Bernard Longer is going is gonna, to, can't, can't stay that good forever well obviously the thing that's going to go first and we've talked about this is if he ends up hitting three woods into greens the guys his age are hitting five irons into greens he's not winning any tournament right yeah because you are talking about the contrast is to a 50 year old and correct i'm contrasting but yeah but a 50 or phil mickelson's 50 and still bombs at 320 exactly exactly so 50 versus 70 is a big i mean i get 64 is super impressive but i don't know it's going to catch him at some point and i would think by 70 it would have him so you that know, was one, what yeah. decays the worst. What skills decay the worst that are necessary in golf? I mean, I think a lot of strength st- main, maintains, but flexibility, flexibility right? Flexibility, so, odd. Yeah, so much yeah. of power in golf comes from that flexibility. Okay. So I would imagine, though, that yeah, I mean, he has a chance. The other thing that caught me in the last minute or so that we have, I decided to look at this. Um, Andy Murray had a big, big victory the other day. Matter of fact, just yesterday, um, he beat Hubert Hercage of Poland, who's number ten in the world. It's Andy Murray's first victory over a top ten player in like two years. But I wanted to look at the age distribution of the top players in tennis, and here's two things I noticed: ten of the top thirteen players in tennis are now 25 and under. Mm. The only three that are not are Djokovic, Nadal, and Thiem. How old is Thiem? Dominic Thiem's 29. Okay. And here's the other interesting thing. If I take the next 13, 12 of the 13 are over 25. 
<laughs> so what's interesting about this is I don't want to say 25 is a cut point, but there seems to be like if you're 35 <laughs> years old, and you're, I mean, you're Roger Federer, who's 40, you're John Isner, who's 36. You can get to about 20 or 25 in the world, but you're not getting to the top 10 or 15 anymore. That was just an interesting to me that 10 yeah. of 13 are under 25 and then the next 12 of 13 are not. And that, that was just a striking contrast to me. Like the old guys can still, you know, Gail Monfils, he can still be number 20 in the world, but you're not getting to number five. You know, tennis is the sport where the, the ladder of, of level is, is, has so many rungs. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's a just a vast difference between t- between the, the top five and six through 10 and a vast distance of 10 to 20. It's just not the case in other sports. Well, this has been the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a third quarter to go. We're going to talk about a lot of football. And then, of course, we have a guest in our quarter four. So please stay. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into Q3. I'm back with the boys. Technology solution temporarily solved. This is Cade Master with Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Shane Jensen's out doing Shane Jensen things. Some combination of us are here every week. This quarter, football. We haven't talked football yet. I walk away and the boys just talk baseball all show long. You can't let them. You can't let them go and supervise. Yeah, we did talk COVID for a few minutes too, but yes. Okay, COVID, good. Um, well, we do have the World Series kicking off tonight, which is a big deal, good fun. Um, on the football front, what, we're we're at the midway point almost with NFL. We're a little past the midway point for college football. NFL guys, anything catch your eye? Your Jets are drifting way down, Adi. Oh my God! And, and my second favorite team would be the Eagles, and they're drifting far too so well the the jets are giving the texans a, mon- a run for the money which is a challenge to do i mean those two teams are for massey people they're just really kind of bottoming out so i'm sorry to hear it um on the other end of the spectrum bradlow's boys are blowing it out they had a big jump in our numbers after a super impressive after a super impressive week they are two points clear of the number two tampa bay at the top of our numbers two points clear of buffalo on a neutral field so looking strong what has your eye around the NFL, Eric? Well, let me just even start with the Jets for a second. I wanted to ask Adi a question. So we know Zach Wilson's now hurt. Uh, the Jets now have Joe Flacco. They traded back for Flacco. So Flacco's now going to be starting, I think, for the Jets. But more importantly, assuming they bottom out the way I think they will and they give the Texans a potential run for the money at the bottom, how confident are you? in that Zach Wilson should be the quarterback even next year. I understand they traded up to get him. They got him at number two. Like, have you seen anything to suggest if they're a top one or two team again, they shouldn't draft another quarterback, at least have a competition between Zach Wilson and person X? Uh, okay, I'm going to just point out, don't most great quarterbacks have a pretty weak rookie season? Yes, absolutely, 100%, no question. So then why should we be talking about this now? Yeah, it's a little early. I Be- agree with that. I, I, I'm just asking, has you seen flashes of greatness? Uh, I haven't watched enough to know. I would want to look at something like PFF's quarterback ratings. They look at every play. They rate passes. Yep. But I'd want to also know how that compares to rookie quarterbacks in the past. And um, 
in general, I think we're too quick to pass judgment on rookie quarterbacks. And so, right. I mean, Trevor Lawrence is looking pretty awful in both traditional metrics and PFF ratings. Right. Mm -hmm. But the two teams on the positive side, let's go back now to the positive side that caught my eye this past weekend. Uh, Let's forget the Bucs. I I, I knew the Bucs were going to be really good. The Titans absolutely destroyed the Chiefs and did so the week after the Bills. You know, you that's a gauntlet. You beat the Bills and the Chiefs in back-to-back <laughs> weeks. That's Seriously. impressive. Seriously. And so the Titans, to me, are, are really starting to take shape. And the second one, we all predicted this game the wrong way last week. The Bengals routed the Ravens. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you, Joe Burrow made throwing for 400-plus yards easier than I've seen in a long, long time. Yeah. This guy is really good. And the Bengals, see if he can stay healthy. They have, I mean, I'm not sure I don't know who why, I would why. trade. I, I'm not sure who I would trade him for right now. I mean, Joe Burrow looks great. <laughs> well, By the way, know. isn't Joe Burrow one of the oldest rookie quarterbacks? He's not rookie this year. Uh, but the, yeah, that's right. He's, yes, right. he's probably like 25. He's like a senior citizen. <laughs> <Yeah. All right. laughs> And, you know, that, that's an important factor in most models. I mean, the NFL team, all else equal, you're going to want to draft a younger guy because if you think they're equal now, and he's still got a lot of development to go, but it's allowed him, it certainly allowed him to perform better than the typical college quarterback late in his career, and it may be an advantage here in the NFL. But, you know, he had a tough first year, and then he got hurt. And, um, but, man, I mean, when he was playing well his senior year at LSU, you know, 60-year senior or whatever he was, it was impressive, and it was, a lot, it was very toolsy in lots of ways, and so there is a lot of optimism on Burrow. I'm strangely pulling for the guy. He's, you know, he beat Texas in a dramatic game, and, you, and, but I feel the same way about Darnold. Some, I pull for these guys that I, saw, I watched play at the college level I was really impressed with, and it's fun to see him connecting with Jamar Chase. I mean, fun unless they're playing your team. It's I guess those days of Jamar playing. Chase dropping balls in the preseason, no one's talking about that now. Yeah. Uh, the guy's catching every ball thrown to him, and he, you know, he's a top probably 10 receiver right now in the NFL. I watched a lot of that Bengals game and I'm going to tell you, Jamar chase looks good. Well, it's remarkable. That was a great receiver class in the draft last year. A lot of debate about which quarter, which one should come, come off first, but the Bengals are an interesting study because they are not um, a sophisticated front office. They don't have a reputation in the scouting department on the analytics front as sophisticated. Um, and they, and they haven't been good very often, but they've got this. Where does Massey Peabody have the Bengals right now after the beating the Ravens? So we have them at nine. I mean, all the way to nine. They jumped more than a point this past week, jumped a couple spots and more than a point in our ranking. So that that's, but for example, that's between Dallas and Green Bay. But you that's know, it's not still, bad company. It's not bad company. We're still shy on Tennessee. We're somehow not convinced on Tennessee, despite the gauntlet you, you just named. Uh, let's talk about this coming week. What games do we have that interest you, Eric? I know this Thursday night game. I mean, we might even get Audi to watch some Thursday night football. Green Bay is going to Arizona. Arizona has been rocking it this year. Kyler Murray looks great in all kinds of stats, all kinds of ratings. Now, it's less interesting than we thought it was going to be because the uh, Green Bay lost their receiver, Devontae Adams. I think this line opened at like three, three and a half, and then it's gone to six and a half. When they say lost, let's just be clear. He's vaccinated, but he tested COVID positive. And unless he has two successive COVID tests that are negative 24 hours apart, he won't be playing in Thursday's game. And one of the things we were talking about off air a little bit was the line literally moved two points when when his information came out. It's it's hard to 
put two points on a player that's not a quarterback. It, what's true is, you know, you were just talking about evaluating baseball players at the mean versus evaluating them against tougher competition. We, we had the same challenge when we assessed the impact of losing a receiver or a offensive lineman or a defensive tackle. You're, you're usually looking at like the mean. What happens if you lose the best receiver in the league? Well, that's going to be different than losing the average starting receiver. Even the average, you know, top receiver on the team is different from the, the best receiver in the league. And so, I don't know, two, two feels heavy, but we well, I haven't me, seen the analytics that really would support. But let me say why this game is huge. It's really a titanic game. Let's, Arizona, I believe, is 7-0. and let's, let's say they've both played seven games at the moment. Arizona 7-0, Green Bay is 6-1. I know I have their number of losses, right? Arizona has none, Green Bay has one. If Arizona beats Green Bay, they not only have a two-game lead, but they have the tiebreaker over them. That's essentially a three-game lead. Now, you say, well, what does it really matter? Well, remember the way the NFL playoffs work now. The number one seed is the only team with a bye. There are now seven teams in. So this game, if Arizona wins this game, I don't find – with only half the season left, I find it a difficult scenario to believe that Green Bay is going to pass Arizona. Yeah. That could have a significant impact on who, especially given the weather in Green Bay and all this, who wins that game if they play each other in the playoffs. So I think this game is worth more than one game. Green Bay had, and of course, let's play the opposite. Green Bay wins this game. They both have one loss, but they have the tiebreaker. This is absolutely a titanic Thursday night game and its importance cannot be underestimated. Now, my view is, you know, remember what he said after game one when they lost? Aaron Rodgers said, relax, man, relax. Yeah, Yeah, and the guy's thrown like 20 touchdowns and no picks in the last six weeks or something. I'm telling you right now, I'll always go with the greatest. And Aaron Rodgers just purely throwing the football is the greatest I've ever seen. I'm still going with Aaron Rodgers in that game. And I. I, Well, you get a lot of help from six and a half point line, but that's a. uh, I I don't know if I would take them on the money line, but I, I like Green Bay. I mean, I. Just Rodgers is playing so well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, that's a fascinating game. The other game, of course, that I really care about, of course, is Tampa Bay and New Orleans. You say, oh, what does it matter? New Orleans stinks. Okay, well, they stink with a 4-2 and two record. Yeah. Tampa Bay's 6-1. They've had a bye week already, New Orleans. So Bucks lose. They're 6-2, and two, and New Orleans is 5-2. and two. You say, well, the Bucks are going to win the division. Well, who said that? Well, this is, I mean, obviously, division races, this, this is a great rivalry the last few the last few years, nobody loves New Orleans Saints like the Massey Peabody model does, (laughs) better or worse, the last couple of years. We just can't quit the Saints. We have them number five in the league, and it feels like one of those games where it's just, oh, clearly the Bucs are going to win. And did you watch any of last night's game with awful Jameis Winston quarterbacking? I I didn't watch it, but I was, you couldn't avoid the tweet storm that was going on. I mean, the world was just kind of aghast at what the, the what they were seeing on the field. It was terrible, terrible game. Well, the line here is five, and I, we, 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 because of our love for the Saints, think that's significantly overrated. The Saints are not that bad, and they have home field. But, God, I hate to bet against the Bucks. So but what would Massey with, Peabody have it with the home field for the We US? have it at like one. We'd make it like one, which feels crazy, just crazy. But I'll, I'll put my money on that side since that's where the model is. That side, we're getting five points. It helps. Well, it's obviously a very interesting game. And, of course, there, you know, the other thing I wanted to, since you're, you're here, Kate, I want to talk about college football. You know, do they play that? Are they playing that right now? Is they that are playing on? it. And I, I'm telling you something, I'm starting to feel worse and worse for Cincinnati. 
<laughs> no way Alabama's losing another game unless they lose to Georgia. That's well, the let's, only let's... team. It's the only team that has a chance of beating Alabama. And I, I don't even know what the lines would be if Georgia and Alabama played right now on a neutral field, which I think the SEC championship game is played on a neutral field. Yes, yes, yes. In Atlanta or something. Yeah, that's um, right. What, what, what would they have that line? So according to us, the line would be like one or two uh, Georgia favored by one or two. All right. So it's a pick them game. It's so, close. I mean, it's, it's a very, very close game. So, but Eric, let me, let's, let me just tell you, in, in talking about these, the, the field has evolved, and Ohio State kind of quietly has been – really improving especially on the offensive side of the ball now they haven't played a lot but we try to factor that of course we don't know about injuries and they've played some teams with some injuries but right now we have three teams just lapping the field georgia alabama and ohio state has snuck up there we would make alabama ohio state essentially a toss-up i mean within a hundred within a tenth of a point wow and so you have those three teams within a point and a half of each other and then a 13 point drop to the fourth team. Wow. But look, all you're saying is, let's just to summarize, in your view, there will be a Big Ten team, almost certainly, in the college football playoffs. This isn't the year there's not going to be a Big Ten team. Michigan's undefeated. Um, I think Michigan State might be undefeated. I don't know, right? I That's mean, right. they're, they're playing, playing each other. But this weekend, yeah. They're playing each other. Penn State losing helped the fact that there might not be. But look, let's face it, there's going to be a Big Ten so hold team. Hold on, Eric, Eric. Most likely. On the other hand, every, everybody has to play everybody as we I roll know, into the but second there's half. There's most likely going to be even a one-loss Big Ten team. There's going to be – most likely there's going to be a Big Ten team in the playoffs. We know Georgia or Alabama is going to be in the playoffs. I think Oklahoma – I mean, maybe, maybe Cincinnati's chances that Oklahoma yeah, loses. That's right, Eric. I mean, come on. You can't watch the Oklahoma Sooners this year and, and be convinced that they're going to go undefeated. That was They're an trying. exciting game. The other day. That was an exciting game. That was a very They're trying to lose. My God, I can't even watch college football. And by the way, really Cincinnati's can't. play against Navy was horrendous. That, that well, Cincinnati, I'm, I, I'm now off Cincinnati. I apologize to our listeners on Wharton Moneyball. Everything I said about the doomsday scenario, I'm all for it still. But Cincinnati's no good. They no, barely on, beat Navy. Eric, you can't that was terrible. Like that. Awful. That's an Eric, awful football team. Come on. Don't you understand variance? You understand variance? <laughs> what are you talking about? All right. They were awful against Navy. Yeah, well. And I don't want to watch that games. team play somebody good and get blown out. Well, Ohio State was awful against Oregon, and now they look like world beaters. And so, no, but you know, maybe it's not Oregon. No, but I mean, Oregon wasn't great. They didn't have their top defensive players, top player on the field that game. I, there's just you, you, especially with college, college football, Eric, and especially this year, you got to temper these reactions. I mean, there's just so much uncertainty. You want to not extract too much meaning from. But any let me of these ask games. one last question because I think we're almost out of time here. Just one quick question. If Wake Forest runs the table, does who's undefeated, does Wake Forest go as the ACC undefeated champion? I mean, it always depends on the field. So I mean, these are fun games to play, but it, you can't make that decision in isolation because Wake, I mean, what are, you, what, are they, what are they supposed to do? They go undefeated, they win, but, but the, here's the deal. Clemson's down. No one's ever impressed with the ACC. The priors on Wake before the season were not strong. And so they, had, they faced some of the, same challenges I would say their group of five team would, check, would face, especially coming out of the ACC in a year where Clemson's down. They don't have the schedule to back it up. So I think it would depend entirely on the context. If it's the field that we expect it to be, 
I think they would have a hard time. If it's a field where, you know, carnage happens over the next month at the end of the season, then maybe so. Waco's undefeated. Cincinnati goes undefeated. Who do they take? I think Cincinnati. Um, Cincinnati will be higher in the models. They were higher in the preseason rankings. They probably have the better win against Notre Dame. Um, so, I mean, All right. Wake, Wake, I mean, Wake is, they're as close to a group of five teams as they can be in the power five. Um, poor guys. I mean, they're having a great season. But I like the idea. You, I mean, you, you, what you really pull for, you don't pull for the Bearcats. You're no, pulling I could for, care less. You, you pull for drama. You want drama. Right. Eric, this, this time of year, Eric wants like six teams that you can't distinguish or better yet, seven. You know, that. Right. Of, which is fun. I'll give you that. That's fun. Um, so a couple games this weekend, uh, Michigan, Michigan State. I mean, this is a rivalry game. It's you rarely get both teams. I think I think I just heard that they haven't both been top 10 since 1964. I mean, how beautiful is that? This is a 60 year event and one of the great rivalries. Is in it Michigan football. or Michigan State? Uh, I don't know where that game is. I should know that uh, Michigan gets Ohio State. It's so at Michigan travel. State. Yeah, it's they're at Michigan travel State. From Michigan State. What line do we have on that? I haven't seen that. We have there. Michigan minus four and a half. OK, so. Massey Peabody makes Michigan the eighth best team in the country. And we don't really believe in Michigan state. My gosh, we don't have them at 38, 38. So that's gotta be a lot more than four and a half. Yeah. We have Michigan state plus eight and Michigan plus 16, almost 17. So let's call it nine on a neutral and give them back a couple. So make it a seven point. All right. So it's not, it's, 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 uh, but either way, yeah, that's obvious. Look, my view is if, if Jim Harbaugh doesn't win this game, I'd fire him. I wouldn't even let him go back to uh, the big house. Eric, (laughs) where where are these takes coming from? When did you become the hot? Just having a little bit of fun, a little bit of fun. I just having a little bit of fun. I just think this is an opportunity for Harbaugh. He's got his chance. Beat Michigan State. But this is a solid Michigan State team. It is. It is. This is a, this is a very legitimate, match the sad matchup of course is ohio state penn state because that looked like it might be a real big deal before penn state lost a couple in a row including one disaster nine overtime game to illinois i mean this was just extraordinary um extraordinary but not least because most of those overtimes they weren't scoring any points well let's remember that college football has changed rules by the third overtime it's just going for two so seven of those overtimes after the second overtime that used to be you'd still go for a touchdown from the 25, but you'd have to go for two. But now they got rid of all of that. After yeah. the second overtime, you start at the three yard line. You're always going for just two. And it's just one play after another. Just so one play who, after who, another. Who can get three yards is super interesting. And I mean, nine overtimes is just absolutely I, I feel for the guys who had to watch that stuff. Um, what else do we have? We have other games on the college football front, a couple that are interesting, uh, Georgia, Florida, that's a rivalry game. Florida's having a bad year. People, I think they're probably, I don't know. I haven't given up on the Gators, but Georgia, man, it's a bit of a buzzsaw. Um, Ole Miss Auburn. You like this one? I've been following Ole Miss recently. And um, are you a Lane you know, Kiffin fan? Are you a big Kiffin a, a follower there, Bradlow? I don't know if I'm a follower, but you know, cause I, just cause of his dad, I was obviously a Bucks fan. I'm a Bucks fan, Monty Kiffin. So the lineage there. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing Ole Miss run the table. I don't even know where they are. I assume, I think I looked, they're in Alabama's part of the SEC, right? Yeah, the West, yes. Yeah, so that's unfortunate because I was hoping that they could run the table and do some damage in the SEC championship game, but they're not making the SEC championship game. 
No, no, they're not. Um, Got to give Kiffin a little bit more time. Brian Harson is the coach down there at Auburn first year, an outsider, not an SEC kind of guy. So I'm kind, kind of pulling for him to do something. I, I think I don't know what the deal is. I think he might be a holdout on the vaccinations, which is just extraordinary to me. But um, we may have some back drama out of the out of the Auburn team. Um, all right, guys. So that's a little bit of rundown on the college football front and the NFL front. It's getting into the fun part of the year where we'll be talking playoffs. We'll have the committee probably here in the next week or two, and we'll be talking bowl scenarios. It started out so um, so so uh, interesting and high variance, and it, it could settle down to real predictable Final Four in the end. We'll see. All right, guys, that has been Q3, three quarters of Wharton Moneyball in the books. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. The fourth quarter, our traditional interview segment in the time of COVID. Have three quarters of the team here. Same team we've had for the whole show. Kate Massey hosting with Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Shane Jensen away this week. He'll be back. Glad to welcome onto the show for the first time someone many of you guys know, Ryan Paganetti. We're going to talk with Ryan about football analytics, his life post Super Bowl, maybe pre some future Super Bowl. Ryan, possibly. Listen, man, good to see you. Good to have you on the show. Welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. I've heard a lot about you guys, and it's exciting to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. Always fun to talk football analytics with someone who does some of it, especially someone who's had some time inside the buildings. Uh, you're well known for being on the headset with Doug Peterson in the Super Bowl run for the Eagles. And, of course, that was uh, one of many years you spent there. Six years, I think, you've spent with the Eagles, which is a long run with the football team. Um, love to hear how you feel about all that. It's, you know, I think – from what I observe, the guys that are inside these buildings, their life becomes the building. You guys put in crazy hours. The whole world is that team, that sport. Uh, except for a few weeks off in June, that's what you do. I'm curious how it feels to be outside of it for a little bit, what your perspective is on NFL right now. A little bit about what you're doing, what you're doing right now that we can back up and talk about what you were doing with the Eagles. Yeah, so actually I, I was very fortunate right now to be able to get a consulting opportunity. And so it was basically a remote opportunity and I'm, I'm living down on the beach by St. Pete and, and uh, you know, I'm able to sort of contribute to a college football team right now. And I think it's a kind of a unique challenge for me because I hadn't really had any experience with college football analytics and it's a totally, it's really a totally different, uh, you know, situation. And I think there's a ton of edges to be had in the college game in particular. And, you know, there's really, you know, there's a ton of data. There's a, there's a lot of variation between teams and, um, it's something I'm enjoying, but, you know, it's definitely a nice break because personally, you know, I really was over a hundred hour work weeks, you know, for six straight years, I got that summer break in there, but, you know, it really was a grind and uh, it really became my identity. Like I wasn't a person. I just, I just wasn't a Philadelphia Eagles employee. And like, maybe it was too much, <laughs> um, you know, and, and to, for the chance to win the Super Bowl, I mean, obviously that was really you know, maybe the most exciting moment in my life. And it was like such a fulfillment of, you know, my life goals. But at some point I needed to like sort of develop an identity outside of my job. And I think this is giving me a little bit of a chance to do that. 
So Ryan, let me just follow up. Let me just follow up with a point that you raised. Um, while the I'll call it the empirical findings might be different, why did you say something that, uh, by the way, I think will really interest our listeners on Wharton Moneyball that college football analytics is very different in a lot of ways than pro football analytics? Why is that? Um, I think one of the first reasons is you know there there's an enormous disparity in team strength at times, and I think you you really can adopt a variety of strategies accordingly. Like for example, you know, there's a lot of games where you see three, four touchdown spreads and, you know, in theory, you could make the case from a win probability standpoint, some of these underdogs could be going for, you know, almost all their fourth downs just because, you know, they're almost certainly going to lose, you know, some of the dynamics in the college game uh, in particular, the field goal kicking is horrendous in college. You know, you might take, a yard line in the NFL, like say take the 30 yard line in the NFL and a field goal might go in X percent of the time. And in college football, it may be 20% less, you know, so that actual, you know, math ends up in my opinion, at least from, for what I've studied, you know, most college teams should be going for, you know, third, uh, fourth and threes, fourth and fours, fourth and fives, as opposed to in, in the, in the pro game, you know, those, those situations might lean towards field goal. Um, but I think that that dynamic between field goals and fourth downs, you know, I think there's a ton of uh, really, really cool stuff, which is schemes that are used in college. There's a lot of option, you know, there's I mean, on a weekly basis, I wouldn't want to be a defensive coach in college because you might see triple option one week. You might see, you know, run and gun the next week. You might just see, it's, it's really exceptional, the, the variations that you see. But I think, you know, there's certain things like, you know, maybe in college, you know, running can be in some scenarios more effective than passing as opposed to in passing. There's a lot more scenarios that in the NFL, there's a lot more scenarios where passing is more favorable. And I think there's a little bit of a different argument there. And um, it, it's pretty interesting though. Ryan, how have you found the acceptance of analytics among college coaches? Maybe you're only working with one staff, but what's your sense of the openness and interest compared to the NFL? I think it's, it's been a little bit less just because um, in general, these colleges are most teams just did not have this, you know, for forever, at least the, the NFL teams, you know, at this point, you know, pretty much every team has some sort of department, but for a very long time, you know, virtually no colleges were doing this stuff. And even, you know, there's not really many examples of a team in, in college using analytics and having success and then other teams wanting to emulate that. And I think, that was one of the reasons that the sort of the analytics, I guess, revolution picked up in the NFL is, you know, we with the Eagles and some other teams like did use analytics and had success. And I think that the, the fact that we were able to, you know, win the Super Bowl really set off sort of like an arms race where a lot of other teams were looking and, and looking to add staff and, you know, to take this idea more seriously. But, you know, in the college, I think one of the issues is, you know, realistically, the teams just have the most talent end up, you know, in the college football playoff every year. And, you know, they could do, there's some games, you know, Alabama theoretically could punt every fourth down all year. And they, they probably still are going to win almost all their games. And I think just because, because of that, um, it, 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 in my experience, you no know, coaches seeing another, uh, you know, team have a ton of success using analytics would be the thing that I think would sort of kickstart things. And you haven't necessarily seen that. I think Ole Miss with Lane Kiffin is actually a team that I'm really interested in. Because, um, you know, they're, they've been probably the most aggressive college football team of like the main SEC teams, you know, these power teams. And they've had a lot of success on fourth downs. And, you know, they're, they're doing some interesting things on offense. And I think you more and more, I think you will see teams sort of begin to get involved. I love the I love the premise that these advances require 
big examples because of how much of a copycat league it is. And um, it is intriguing to think about whether second tier teams, I mean, everybody's second tier after the top, you know, four or so. And so I don't, I don't mean to denigrate Ole Miss, but it is intriguing to think it, they ought to be exact. Right? I mean, other, if everybody's kind of in Ole Miss's shoes, struggling to, you know, jump a tier, if they can send, see them do something different, maybe that will inspire. But it's a, it's a super interesting idea. We've seen the power of, you know, success in the NFL then trickling through, but mm. we haven't seen that yet in college. You're exactly right. Adi. It seems that I I just want to see if I can rephrase this in the NFL, the teams are much, much closer in talent. Mm -hmm. And so the advantage that one gets or doesn't get if one doesn't pursue it of analytics against the backdrop of very low variance in teams is actually quite important, potentially quite important. Although strikingly, I mean, we talked about we we had a previous guest earlier in the year who basically said the worst team in analytics might be a, a half a game lower than average and the best about a half a game higher than average in the NFL. Oh, 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 Adi, that was only on one particular. That was one particular uh, metric. Issue. I think it was fourth down yeah. aggressiveness or, or, or is that? Uh, or... I think it was fourth down. Yeah, I think it was yeah. fourth down. And... Which is, of course, measurable. Obviously, those decisions are measurable. There's lots of other analytical processes that don't immediately can measure from team to team. Um, so what you're saying is that because in college is such a vast differences between the teams, the advantage that one gets um, isn't as readily apparent or even necessary, but it could be enormously apparent or necessary in the playoffs or when the teams are much more comparable, that could make the difference. Yeah. I think at the same time too, when you see some of these really shocking college football upsets, you know, cause I mean, there are cases in college football, you might see a team that's a 24 point underdog or a 19 point underdog, you know, win a game. You do, you do look and see some of these fourth down conversion rates are very high or they control the time of possession, you know, army, Navy, some of the, uh, the military academies sort of have been very aggressive on fourth downs and they run a totally unique offense with the option. And I, I do think that um, particularly with the, the teams that are just so far behind, I mean, you almost certainly, if you're a major underdog, are going to have to convert some, some situations and have some things fall your way in order to even have a chance to be competitive. And I think, I think you'll see it more and more, but you know, at, at the same time, these, these top tier schools are so far ahead that, and also I think the media attention is so much less in a lot of these smaller scenarios that um, I, I just think that there's less discussion of some of the situations and the, and the game management stuff compared to the pro game too. What are you seeing on other sides of analytics? So you're most of you're talking about in-game strategies so far. Are you, are, do you think edges are there in, on the traditional in, in, in the NFL? We talk about personnel. Of course, it's different. I mean, what's the draft equivalent for college? It's recruiting, and mm-hmm. we just don't have as much information about high school players as we do college players. Do you think there are edges in personnel on the college side? Do you think there are edges in sports science on the college side in the way that we believe they are in the NFL? Yeah, I would say I think there's a lot of interesting stuff, particularly with the sports science um, in the college game, because you have these massive rosters and there's all sorts of different roster implications because you can trot out so many different players. You're not limited by your 46 man roster. You know, you can you might have 100, 100, 110 players to work with in terms, you know, injury prevention or strength and conditioning. Um, I think in general, uh, there's a lot of data that's sort of supporting that. To some degree, the recruiting rankings do matter. And, you know, you might not be the best coach, but, you know, if you consistently recruit 
Um, you know, you, that these teams that are consistently getting higher recruiting rankings can explain a lot of the variation between team performance. I, I, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but you know, if you're, you know, say, you know, fourth or fifth in your conference in recruiting, as opposed to like 10th or 11th over a three or four game sample and or four, three or four year sample that does add up, you know, I mean, it's an imperfect science and it is subjective scouting, but I think over time, like it does make itself pretty clear to sort of differentiate teams. Mm-hmm. Ryan, we're talking to Ryan Paganetti. He's been in football analytics for us now, working as a consultant to college football teams, taking a little bit of time away from the NFL, but he's best known for his run with the Eagles, which included the Super Bowl year, which if anybody in Philadelphia knows what a monumental year that was. Ryan, can you talk a little bit about how you built up to that? Because in the end, you were on the headset with Peterson, advising, providing information, and you know all these critical all these critical game situations that Peterson became famous for being, you know, aggressive and kind of analytics forward on. So can you talk, talk about the time, you know, in the, in the years building up that, how did you get into that seat? How did your relationship with Peterson evolve to allow that kind of consultation? So I, I started out and I, I started working there during Chip Kelly's last year and, and Chip was amazing to me and gave me an opportunity. And I think he really is an outstanding coach. Um, and I still think, you know, that the NFL never really appreciated how smart that guy was. But, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to sort of survive. And, and uh, you know, for Doug's first year. So I let's, was, talk, let's stay let's stay with let's stay with Chip for a second, because he's such a fascinating character. I mean, I think he's a good example of how how difficult. These coaching jobs, you have to be good at like six, at, you know, probably 25, but I think like six different things that are kind of negatively but you have to be good at all of them to be a successful, at least a lot of them to be a successful head coach. And uh, I mean, I think he was appreciated for his offensive you know, innovation and he wasn't, he wasn't appreciated for some of the ways he conducted himself. At least that's the way it sounded from the outside. Yeah. I, what I would say is um, just from my NFL experience, the easiest way to last as an NFL head coach is have a good quarterback. And, and yeah, at the end of the right. day, Chip never really had a top tier quarterback and he would manage to win a ton of games and have some great offensive performance his first two seasons with really some marginal quarterback play at times or marginal talents. And he almost was a victim of his own success because that third year in Philly, I mean, the Philadelphia vibe was Super Bowl or bust. Like that was the mentality of the, of the, you know, the fan base. And I think it was considered a letdown because the team, you know, just did not come anywhere close to that. But um, I, I think at the end of the day, um, the roster that you have, you know, there's certain things like the staff you assemble, you know, I, I, I certainly witnessed, you know, uh, you know, Doug Peterson hiring Jim Schwartz, who was an outstanding defensive coach. And I think that Doug would tell you that, you know, Jim Schwartz's particular role with the team winning the Super Bowl was really incredibly important. And I think, you know, there's a lot of variables that go into, you know, your team success, you know, part of it is part of it is honestly luck, you know, part of it may be how you carry yourself and things like that. But um, you know, I, I certainly think that, you know, if, if I was a team and, and I had, you know, if I had a chance to hire, say, Chip Kelly as an offensive coordinator and I had an Aaron Rodgers or a Pat Mahomes or a Deshaun Watson or because yeah, I know a lot of teams are looking at Deshaun Watson right now. He's in the news. But, you know, I think there's like certain uh, there, there's certain players at the quarterback position that can make everyone in the organization look a whole lot better. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's very fair. I love that you lead your explanations, your attributions with quarterbacks and luck. That, that covers a lot of, a lot of territory. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, even our, our Super Bowl season, you know, we, we did go for a ton of fourth downs and we converted a bunch, but realistically, you know, over large samples, we probably would not have converted the same amount of fourth downs that we did. We sort of outperformed there. And that was almost beneficial because it, it gave Doug Peterson additional confidence, you know, to be aggressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just in general, so I was sort of a survivor from the previous staff and I was just willing to do whatever to, to help out. And, you know, Doug Peterson was a, a first time head coach and, you know, he was looking for somebody to sort of be his like statistical guy. And, you know, he was trying to follow Andy Reid's model. Andy had a guy who was his statistical coordinator for like 15 years or so. And I sort of fell into that spot because I had a little bit of a coaching experience background in addition to, you know, a, a little bit of a background, you know, with economics. And um, I think the fact that he was not experienced as a head coach was an enormous benefit in terms of his buy-in because he was very open and receptive. And I think a lot of these old-time coaches have a way of doing things. And if they have had success in their career, they have no interest in changing. I mean, there's a lot of coaches right now that may have been some, if you look at some of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, tables that show like the least and most aggressive coaches in the NFL, you know, many of the older successful coaches are at the bottom of the league in aggressiveness and and i think at the end of the day they're comfortable with playing the game a certain way and they're very hesitant they're like i've, won, I've, ever, I've made the playoff 15 times or i've you know i've won a lot of games in this league doing it this way i'm not changing and as opposed to doug had no experience and he's like hey this you know this makes sense this sounds good let's do it can you give us an example well, of oh sorry go ahead uh Cade. well i was going to say a couple of things there just real quickly eric to, uh, a real quick follow-up one I hear you, but it's not it's not just coaches. Coaches may be a, the, the, the classic whipping boy for that point. But, man, I think that's pretty typical of managers, leaders, executives everywhere. They've, they've gotten to that position by doing it a certain way, and very few of them want to do it another way. This battle of analytics versus traditional experts is not unique to sports. It happens in many industries, and it's often the same dynamic, that the people who are in charge – they got there. They've done it a certain way, and they don't want to. They don't want to change. But man, the NFL. I mean, money, you don't have to look past Monday Night Football last night to see an example of what you're talking about. Success can be success can be your downfall if you don't stay open, especially as fast as things change in the NFL. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, the other thing too that really was important is our owner was very pro analytics and very supportive of using data. And he had given the head coach the green light, and he was you know really telling him he's like, hey, look you know, we believe in the data, like we realize, you know, that it does say, you know, for example, go for more fourth downs, go for more two point conversions. And I know the media is going to kill you if some of these don't work, but like, I believe in it and I'm going to support you. And I know, you know, over the long run, this is going to help us. And to have that, you know, endorsement from the ownership, I think was really important for the head coach to be willing to, you know, go for these chances. It's amazing to hear that. That's the single most important thing. And the Peterson is remarkable and a great testament to the importance of that. It, it really all goes back to the owner. Again, I'm sorry, man. Why don't you jump in? No, I, I'll, first, I was going to just make the same point that I think I talked to Ryan about slightly a bit off air, which is I started with the Eagles because I met Jeff Lurie at a soccer game, and my son and his son were playing on opposite teams. And a friend called me over and said, you're a statistician. You should, Mr. Lurie has a PhD in sociology. He'd probably be interested in an application of data science to football. I spoke to him for two minutes. The next day, I was down at the NovaCare complex talking about how to build an analytics presence at the team. So I can just say from my point of view, it took two minutes on the side of a soccer game with Jeff Lurie to convince him that it would be something he'd want to do. Um, I was going to ask you, um, we all talk about going forward on fourth down. We talk about going for two. Um, 
What would surprise our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, without giving away necessarily what the finding was, what was a use of analytics that you guys did? Was it training? Was it in the draft? Was it evaluating scouts? Was it, I don't know, looking at combine data? What would be a way that you guys used analytics that would surprise us? Like, wow, analytics has gotten that far? Um, I think, you know, for actually, you know, game planning and analyzing the league and, you know, asking some big picture questions, um, you know, that was sort of something that I was really involved with. Um, in particular, like, uh, you know, Carson Wentz got credited for like becoming, you know, a great quarterback sneak guy. And we actually, you know, had done like a really significant study on virtually every quarterback sneak ever run that we could find, you know, video copies of or, or have data on. And, you know, very clearly went through every single concern that coaches had of like, we don't want the quarterback hurt. Okay, well, the, the injury rate on quarterback sneaks is, you know, one in 400 or, you know, we, we, we don't like it against this front. Okay, well, here's, here's, you know, 78 snaps against this front. And here's the, here's the conversion rates. Here's the expected points value. Even if you don't convert the, uh, the quarterback sneak on third and one and you end up in fourth and inches or like, so there was a lot of, of data, you, you know, really supporting, you know, of course, you know, that quarterback sneaks were generally underutilized from an expected points and a, you know, conversion rate and a win probability standpoint. And, you know, sort of answering the, the coach's concerns of like this in the past is why we wouldn't do it. And sort of giving them, you know, an argument of why you may want to do it anyways. And, and you may remember that that Super Bowl year, like we would almost quarterback sneak nearly every single fourth and one and third and one. And we had a, I think we converted every single one that season. Um, but I think it was sort of an opportunity to take a lot of data and give a and, you know, use as large samples as possible and, you know, sort of, you know, have a great relationship with the coaches and interact with the coaches on their, you know, schematic concerns or their big picture concerns. Because, for example, the injury thing was something that, you know, was always brought up. But the reality is, is there's been, you know, two times in the last, I think, you know, eight or nine years that a quarterback has actually come out of the game due to a quarterback, uh, you know, a sneak injury. One, unfortunately, was Pat Mahomes, which is a pretty high profile one. But, you know, in general, I think it, it, uh, it sort of spooked coaches thinking they were, you know, putting their guys at high risk. But, you know, you got Tom Brady at 44 years old running quarterback sneaks. If he's not exactly the, the strongest, you know, bodied guy and he seems okay. So I think it's a little bit of an interesting uh, discussion. And, and we were sort of fortunate to kind of take all this data and, you know, show examples of, you know, look at the amount of win probability we could add if we, you know, we're converting a lot of these fourth downs or, you know, avoiding, you know, risky plays or passes on third and short. And, you know, I think it ended up working out pretty good for us. You should quickly tell me what is the conversion rate on a, on a quarterback sneak? Um, so it really, de- it depends on defensively the alignment and it also depends significantly on um, the actual distance to go because like the way it's cataloged by the NFL is, is, you know, any play that is under two full yards will get marked as one yard in these like game books by mm-hmm. these you know scorekeepers. But the reality is if it's one and three quarters of a yard versus, you know, six inches, there's an enormous difference in these conversion rates and so to be able at one point we have like an, an army of interns go through you know something like ten thousand short yardage plays this is before we had the ball tracking data but you know something like ten thousand short yardage plays and sort of subjectively binning each of the plays based off the tv copies into like you know six inches you know a half a yard a full yard one and a half and you can just see that you know the conversion rate just so dramatically increases in the very short yardage ones in particular you know the data would tell you Pretty clearly, you know, if you have, you know, six inches, you know, a foot, a foot and a half, 
you really should quarterback sneak against virtually any presentation defensively. You know, they, even if they have everyone up in there, just these conversion rates are so high, but you'll see some teams they'll get in shotgun with, you know, fourth and six inches and run like a, you know, a, a speed out play, or, you know, they might take a deep shot and uh, you know, there's really no data supporting any of that stuff. And that's the stuff when I watch games that makes me want to, you know, pull my hair out. I'm like, you guys really are, you're taking this ball that is a few inches away from the conversion line and you're moving it back five yards. Like, what are we doing? So let me ask a question. It seems like we, we actually talked about this. I saw a play run where the, the, uh, the, runner seemed to deliberately go out of bounds right before it was on first down uh, right before the first down uh, marker so that it would be second and in inches. And it, I don't think it was deliberate. We discussed it. It sounded like it might be really smart to be deliberate because you're almost mm-hmm. getting like a free play or even two um, because you can quarterback sneak or do something very easy with very high success probability to get the first down. And that gives you a couple of plays to kind of take chances and do, do something potentially uh, quite modest. Um, Am I getting this right? Or I mean, or is this something that the teams are thinking about? I have never heard of a team actually doing, we talked about it like, okay, because very clearly, you know, you know, the expected points, you know, from a second and one in most situations is higher than a first and 10, a few yards ahead. And like, we talked about it, like, would there ever be a a situation where you would coach players to do that? And I think it was really hard to communicate to like running backs and receivers to not get as many yards as you can. Um, uh, just to interrupt, what, what I saw in another play almost the same day is the, what, what the running backs do is they try to toss the ball out in this kind of to get the first down. And if you can tell them not to do that, that's kind of yeah. like a reaction. Like don't jump, don't take the ball out of your hand. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Over the Absolutely. So I, I would say in general, the, the reaching of the ball is – particularly on, you know, first and second downs or after like a very large game down at the goal line is probably the the worst decision that your team could ever make. (laughs) Because, you know, it it happens every single week, particularly with the NFL rules is, you know, some guy catches like a 38 yard pass and then it's, it's going to be a first and goal at the one yard line. If he does not get in, you know, really at the half yard line. And then he reaches the ball out and there's like a fumble situation, you know, sometimes they do score, but you know, sometimes they reach the ball out, the ball's fumbled and it goes out of the back of the end zone. It's a turnover. And that's such a massive change in win probability and expected points that, you know, we would actually try to coach the guys just under no circumstance, you know, on first and second downs, are we reaching that ball over that goal line, you know, recklessly, you know, secure the ball and, you know, you can try to reach it, but um, I mean, it's, it's, it's particularly because you have additional downs. I mean, if you end up with a first and goal from, you know, the half yard line, you know, your expected value there is nearly the same as a touchdown because the touchdown rate is so high. And, you know, these, these chances are so incredibly high that you, that something bad could go happen. And really from like a, you know, win probability standpoint, it's catastrophic. What, what can go wrong? Like if you do fumble, but yeah, I think that's, a, that's something that, you know, where you can take the data, you know, show some TV copies of, you know, guys making these mistakes and sort of, you know, educate them like, you know, to the whole team, like, look, you know, touchdowns are cool. And I know you want to get a touchdown, but like, we have to be careful about, you know, understanding the value of the ball and understanding, you know, first and goal from the half yard line is, is essentially a touchdown anyways. Ryan, talk more about how players receive this kind of guidance. So maybe not the reaching out the ball thing in particular, but just analytics in general. We, we, we talk a lot about coaches and I understand coaches may be the most important, but to what extent do you need player buy-in and to what extent have you seen player buy-in 
for the use of analytics and especially when it changes game strategy and, and the decisions on the field. I think in general, the, the, the players, particularly in Philly, like they really liked it. And I think the messaging coming from the head coach and the defensive coordinator was sort of like, hey, we're going for fourth and one at the 50. And that's because one, we believe in the data, but two, we, we believe in the offense. And three, if we don't get it, we believe in the defense too. Like we're not like, we know you guys can get a stop. And like, I think it, it showed confidence in the players and, you know, in particular, like selecting a punt, for example, gives off a vibe that, you know, you don't really believe in your offense to execute, or like maybe you're concerned about your defense being in a short field. So the players, you know, honestly loved it. I think we, we ran into a couple uh, situations where the, some of the players were, were very sort of confused. And that was when we were going for, you know, two point conversions down eight or two point conversion down four, which we did last year <laughs> and we didn't get it. And the players were like, what the, what are these guys doing? Like that is completely wrong. And so that one was like, we kind of had to like explain it a little bit and, you know, cause it does get a little bit complicated. And, and I mean, usually a team, you know, scores to go down eight, and then just by naturally, the offense just runs off the field, assuming that you're going to kick the extra point. So they were like, wait a minute, what do you mean we're staying on the field? So, I Well, think- this just happened, Ryan, as you may remember, in the yeah. Buccaneers at Eagles game. The Eagles were down 14. And by the way, as someone that had the Buccaneers minus six and a half, I wasn't too happy about this. But regardless, the Eagles scored a touchdown to go down eight and then went for two. And everyone around me screaming, what are the what are the Eagles doing? And of course, it is the right play. But of course, like literally just the fans around me in the stands could not understand why the Eagles wouldn't go down seven. Yeah, no, it's and it's like we've done it in the past. We, we succeeded in the past, you know, around the league. It's been discussed and more and more teams have done it now. But, um, you know, it, it actually worked out for the Eagles two times this year. They just ended up not getting a stop on defense. Right. Game. But, you know, it almost worked out perfectly because, you know, they did convert the two-point conversion. Um, we did it last year in, like, a sort of controversial situation at the end of the third quarter on a down score to go down four situation. And that, I think that was the first time that a team had done that. So we scored to go down four, went for the two, thinking, you know, the two point margin or, you know, being down four was more favorable to being down three and then just, you know, sort of playing for a field goal. And that one, you know, rattled some people. The media was like, what are these guys doing like that? That, that one had everyone confused. I think you're going to see that one more and more, you know, probably from the Browns and Chargers, some of these teams that are really buying in on this stuff. Um, that's going right. to be right. more. Ryan, we're going to have to let you go here in a second. Um, but I would like to hear any advice you have for the analytics community Based on your experience, what do you think the typical analyst needs to do more of or differently in order to be more persuasive and get more buy-in? I think, you know, just really, uh, I, I think there's been a little bit of discussion about the tone being sort of negative among analytics people, or maybe it's sometimes being arrogant. And I think there is a little bit of something to that, you know, I mean, for example, there's been a couple situations this year towards the, you know, the end of a half or end of the game. And you know, you see people on Twitter or social media say, oh, they 100% should have gone for this according to my model. And then, you know, somebody else's model says something exactly the opposite. And like, this stuff is is not black and white. Like, it can get very complicated. I mean, you might have four different win probability models saying different things. And I think just be the, this certainty that some, you know, in, in the analytics community speak in is a little bit not respected by coaches because they get annoyed by it or they get confused. They're like, well, this thing just said we should go for it. And this thing said we should kick a field goal. Like, but you're telling me I'm 100% wrong because I kicked a field goal. And I think, you know, just sort of, you know, trying to explain this is why this is appearing differently, you know, maybe showing, you know, okay, there's, there's four different models and three of them are saying the same thing. Like we realize there's some imperfections or there's some, 
you know, there's some situations in games, you know, some maybe there's things like wind or things like that that we can't necessarily pick up on in the exact moment. But I think just, you know, for analysts to just try to be as respectful as possible and, you know, understand like these coaches are trying their best and they want to win. And they're the guys that ultimately are going to be trending on Twitter for being an idiot if it doesn't work. <laughs> and, you know, just like doing at the end of the day, like, uh, you know, just supporting them, you know, and, and, and doing whatever you can to help them out. And, you know, if, uh, uh, if things don't work out, you know, like being there for them. And I mean, there was times that like, we went for fourth downs and I tried to like, after the game, I'd have to try to, you know, give Doug Peterson some, some information, be like, look, you know, it didn't work, but you know, the reality is we were only going to convert that about 50% of the time. Anyways, it doesn't mean we should totally give up on fourth downs forever. And we don't have to be like anchored to a, a couple previous failed uh, plays, but um, just keeping that like positive relationship and understanding the amount of stress and, you know, attention these guys are in and, uh, and um just, uh, I mean, I, I always just put my offered myself available, like whatever I could do to help, you know, any coach, you know, there's a lot of coaches that, you know, maybe doing things manually and, you know, you might be able to do a query and save them, you know, six hours a week to, to like get something done. And I think that there's like real opportunities to develop great relationships with, you know, staff members by just offering to help and like seeing what they're doing and seeing if there's a way you can maybe even like save them time. That's awesome, Ryan. Solid, solid advice. Appreciate it. Listen, Ryan Paganetti, really appreciate the chance to visit with you. Wish you the best with the work you're doing on the college football front and look forward to seeing you back in the pro football ranks down the road. I suspect we will. Thank you. Ryan Paganetti, that's been uh, the fourth quarter here on Wharton Moneyball, and that has been two hours of sports analytics for the whole team. Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen in absentia. Matty Dats, the boss man, Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Mm-hmm.